Welcome to the Constitutional Futures podcast series from Queen's University Belfast. Thank you all for listening and engaging with this series, now on our 18th episode. I'm Professor Colin Harvey from the School of Law at Queen's. In this series, I discuss the constitutional present and possible futures with those making leading contributions to the ongoing conversations. The focus of our discussion today is the complex legacies of conflict and the consequences for deliberations about constitutional change. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Dr. Anna Bryson and Andre Murphy. I'm going to ask them to introduce themselves to you, the audience, today. Andre. Thanks so much, Colm, and uh, it's just lovely to be in this space today. Um, my name's Andre Murphy, and I have worked for over 20 years with victims and survivors in the NGO Relatives for Justice. And um, I'm also proud to be a member of the Board of Ireland's Future, and I write um, weekly columns on things that tickle my fancy. <laughs> Hi Colin, uh, thanks very much for the opportunity to be part of the podcast um, on your 18th birthday. Um, I'm uh, a historian by training, that's where I started out my career, but sort of post-PhD, I suppose my research interests expanded and developed to include aspects of criminology, human rights and transitional justice. Um, I've worked on a number of different projects over the years on topics including political prisoners, the peace process, the role of apologies in dealing with the past, lawyers in conflict and transition. Um, and I suppose in the last 10 years, um, I've been working with colleagues here at Queen's, Louise Molander and Kieran McAvoy, together with the Committee on the Administration of Justice around issues concerning the legacy of the conflict here. Um, I think there's I have an interest in oral history that I took with me from my early days that has I've managed, I think, to thread through most of the projects that I've been involved in. So that's a flavour of the work that I've been involved in. Well, th- thank you both very, very much. And I suppose the focus of today is to try and, in some senses, join conversations, mm-hmm. the sense in which perhaps not enough is being done at the moment to, to think about the questions we're focusing on. But just to start, it seems to be, you know, turn on the radio, pick up a newspaper online, every day there's there's some contribution to this discussion about constitutional change. I suppose the starting point for the discussion is really what explains that? Why is that happening? Well, I mean, I think in some respects it's demographic change. So, you know, from the foundation of the state where you had a minority that framed about a third of the population, right up to 2021, the census, you know, where materially and symbolically it was very significant that you had, albeit by a slim majority then, that historic minority stepping into the majority. I think that is a significant backdrop to to this conversation, but that maybe unfolded a bit more incrementally. For me, I think the catalyst then in terms of explaining this spike in interest has obviously been Brexit and the ways in which that has, has really unsettled identity politics here and has raised a host of questions for people right across our society, whether they're healthcare workers, whether they're in business, whether they're young people looking to the future, and I think it's not just Brexit, it's also the outworking of it. So I think that the populist and sort of right-leaning impulses that provoke Brexit continue to be felt across a range of different policy areas, whether that's migration or indeed the legacy bill that's currently making its way through uh, the House of Lords. So I think that that for me is is the the catalyst that, that explains uh, a lot of, of, of this uh developing conversation but Andrea I'm not sure what your own thoughts are. Yeah I agree with um, all of that and I think that you're right that there's multiple things there so what is Ireland in the 21st century I think is a large part but 
Ireland post-partition is a whole new place in this century. Um, you know, we saw the um, good outworkings of the Good Friday Agreement with Stormont that was there, and Stormont being incapable of delivering fundamental human rights in so many respects. And I think that that has driven much of the debate as well. What sort of a place do we want to live in? The um, changing nature of the South in parallel becoming more um, socially liberal, I think, has certainly um, influenced as well. And I also think our reflection on the decade of centenaries, where we don't see ourselves uh, in this very narrow post-conflict um, sense, we see it in a much broader sense as well. So I think Brexit, when, you know, as a happening, accelerated much of the debate that was there. But so much of those other areas of who we want to be as a people on this island is also influencing it. In terms of the that discussion, you know that, that that we're talking about really haven't taken off. Thinking about how people should approach that, bearing in mind we are a post-conflict mm. context. So I suppose a follow-on question would be: How should all those engaged in the discussion, on whatever side of the argument they happen to be on, how should they be approaching the legacies of the conflict and our post-conflict? society? Well, I think that there's two parts to that. So, you know, we have victims and survivors of conflict living on this island um, and of gross um, abuses, not only political violence, but also the institutional violence that happened um, post-partition, where we saw the institutions set up for mothers and babies, uh, women, people in poverty were abused on a systemic basis as well. All of that's linked to the political violence on both sides of the border. And of course, we have the political violence too. The constitutional debate is going to raise something in particular for those victims and survivors. If you've been um, affected by Republican violence, you will feel the constitutional debate very, very differently to if you've been affected by state violence. And I think we need to be sensitive to that and we need to respond to um, how people will naturally feel about the debate as a result of that and pretending it isn't there ain't going to work either so i think um human rights is really important in all of this because the one thing that um ties all of that difference of experience is going to be breaches of gross human rights violations and our ability to be able to meet the challenges that they pose yeah no i mean i think just I would agree with Andrew. Like obviously, in broad terms, we need to approach these issues with the utmost sensitivity because, as Andrew knows better than me, across this society, we have hundreds of people for whom the scars of the past are a very, very open wound. Um, and and these are difficult conversations that we need to grapple with around how we can accommodate and respect a plurality of perspectives on the past. I think it is something that we probably do need to give a wee bit more thought to. And there's definitely two aspects to it. There's the the need to sort of, I suppose Andrew mentioned human rights, and I think when people talk about drawing a line under the past and saying, you know, let's just bury that hatchet and look forward mm -hmm. to a bright new future. Well, first of all, it doesn't work. OK, so it's been tried everywhere where you've had partitioned countries. There's probably been attempts to drive underground inconvenient uh, memories. It breeds resistance and it doesn't work in the long term. That's one thing. The other thing is that it's not just about victims uh, sort of needs and wants. It's the fact that they have rights. So international law just doesn't sit squarely with that argument. You know that I think it was Edna Longley said we sh the next commemoration should be to amnesia and we should bury it, bury the monument and forget where we put it. It's easy to say that, but it doesn't actually square with uh, 
the rights of victims. So, so we have to deal with that. That's just a given. And I think then broadening out from dealing with that right to truth and to justice and so on, we need to also think very sensitively about broader conversations around how we accommodate differences and how we learn to respect difference. Um, and the two go hand in hand because, you know, you need to understand the facts of what happened in the past in order to inform, you know, perspectives going forward. So I think um, there, there, there's a complex programme of work that needs to be taken forward legally, politically, culturally and so forth. And it, and we can't simply wish that away. The language that's been used around all, all this um it's some has become a dominant theme in the debate is you know preparation and planning everybody's talking about preparation and planning i suppose a question that flows from from that is whether enough has been done on precisely the points you're raising in that preparatory work is enough being done to address some of the points that you've you've just made andre well, obviously not. I mean, you know, when it comes to victims and survivors of human rights abuses, we've got it wrong from for just so long. We saw the conflict where there was no human rights compliance. We saw the uh, post-Good Friday Agreement um, era where we treated victims and survivors as, as either sites of contest or sites of compromise with piecemeal efforts to look at some small numbers of victims at different stages. And then we see the failures um, in terms of broader measures, um, whether it was the Stormont House Agreement or subsequently. And I think that all of that tells us that we have a body of work to do now. There would be a temptation to say, well, the future and the constitutional future means that we'll draw a line under that. The future is rosy and everyone will live happily in a new, in a new constitutional settlement. And as Anna says, that, that absolutely isn't going to happen. So I was very struck at the three arena when Ireland's future held its conference. And so many people talked about moving on from the past, the violent past, as though that is somehow possible. Legacy is something we carry with us. History is something about the past, but legacy we carry with us. And I think that we need to get our heads into, if we're talking about a human rights compliant new republic, new Ireland, then we need to look at the, the fact that they're not going to be about violations in the future. They're violations that happened in the past are currently happening, that these citizens who will be part of the new island will carry with them. And we're going to have to really grapple with the challenges, as Anna says. You know, if we do have a British withdrawal, for instance, then we have all of the obligations of the British government. Where will they reside in a new republic? And um, what are they going to deliver to uh, victims and survivors in that in that context? Similarly, for um, you know the Dublin government, how are they going to be able to engage with all of that as a um, as a sovereign government, but with violations that didn't happen under their watch? So I think that it's going to be um, incredibly complex. And if we don't start planning for that now. As Anna says, what we are going to do is build up so many issues um, that will carry into um, the new settlement that really it will, just as the Good Friday Agreement itself was tarnished by the past, it our, our future could be tarnished by this too. I suppose, Anna, just, you know, again, following on from that, raises a question about you know, can this island, these islands really credibly face the future, whatever that might be, without addressing the past comprehensively and in a, in a human rights compliant way? Well, no, I, I don't think we can. I mean, you could, but I don't think it would be advisable <laughs> for all the reasons that we've been discussing. I think um, 
you know, there is an opportunity now to plan and prepare. And even as this conversation has unfolded, I think it has reminded me of the way in which perhaps these conversations on legacy issues and on constitutional change have been developing in parallel. And I think it does really underline for me the need um, for all of the reasons that Andre outlined, um, you know, that we need to begin to unpack this and to, to look at the different aspects of it and to plan and prepare. So that's a key issue that you raised around what procedural obligations does, you know, a new state acquire for harms committed under territory that was not under its constitutional ambit, you know, but now is. So what does that look like? You know, we need to look, bring in our international lawyers and mm-hmm. others to really get to grips with that. I have a real interest in archives as well. And I've been thinking in the last few days about what happens to archives. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you only have to read, you know, Cabane's work on history thieves to know that what happened in the past, you know, around, uh, you know, the empire was in Aden and Malay and places like that. There was just an incinerator, you know, the the splendid incinerator in Singapore where files were burned. And then it became more sophisticated as the colonial office developed Operation Legacy and you had a filtering through it. We've seen importance of that just this weekend. Sam McBride broke a story, you know, about files that have been, uh, you know, redirected to Kew Gardens that were destined for Prony and so on. And that got me thinking about what happens to archives at the moment of constitutional change. So it's just one aspect, but it's something important to think about because, you know, this is all uh, important stuff around uh, the cultural context in which a new uh, constitutional settlement bears down and develops. I suppose... Again, the question that that raises is how almost that sense of parallel discussions happening. And the question then of how do we, in a sense, because many of the people involved in this are often the same (laughs) people, but how how do we bring these discussions together? We have to do it formally. We have to decide that we're going to do it because I think that we find it easier to do it on something like health or on education because often that is quite forward looking on this because it's often portrayed as a difficult conversation, sometimes cast as a toxic conversation. But there's probably a bit of avoidance on it, if we're honest. And, you know, it's about us making a decision that we're not going to do that avoidance. I think for victims and survivors, they have been treated so poorly and they, The worst thing we could do is replicate the bad practice that we have seen over the last 30 years going into the the new dispensation. Yeah, I mean, I I think it's also just, I mean, maybe the more positive way to look at it as well is that there's an opportunity here because embedded within our conversations and legacy, of course, are, you know, thinking through what we really need to be focusing on. And Andrea and others have worked hard on highlighting, you know, the ways in which gender issues have been overlooked. That's one example. So I think that one of the ways to come at this is thematically looking at class, looking at gender. And they're the things that kind of take us down the by roads towards our common humanity and towards, you know, the kind of Ireland that we want to live in, where we understand and respect each other and have a deep and textured understanding of our respective experiences. So some of that has begun to thread its way through into the debate on legacy and I think could probably help to inform the broader conversation on what a new Ireland looks like because you know, we we need to be careful not to just, you know, there's always a danger of just, you know, going by existing paradigms and not questioning them. And I know this came up with Aoife O'Donoghue when she was talking about, you know, feminist con- constitutional futures. There's such a danger, as you know, Andrew, with, you know, around these issues, you just add gender and stir. So we need to be <laughs> thinking really deeply about those kinds of issues and how they inform our work on legacy, but then how that broadens out into a much wider conversation on the type of, of, of constitutional future that we want to see. 
Listening to, to that, what, what is fascinating is in the, the, both the recent uh, podcasts on climate justice and, and the one that we're having today, uh, there are questions around how we're framing the starting points in, yeah. in the discussion um, and, and trying to get that, that right. And that's what I hear very much in those responses. In terms of planning for the future, there's also a theme around both governments working together. And I suppose we can't have this discussion without talking about what the British government is currently planning to do. But it's also notable, of course, that there were prior agreements around this uh, involving both governments, which the unilateral approach being taken from Westminster is dishonouring. And I wonder, in some senses, alarm bells perhaps should be going off with people who are assuming that both governments will be able to do the planning work in advance and honour what what is agreed because the current legacy discussion would give you reason to to doubt that very very much so it takes me on really in a long and winding way to the implications of uh, the legislative plans of the current British government that is really in the human rights world being universally yeah. condemned but I just wanted you know I couldn't have you both here in this discussion was like your your reaction to where that debate is currently at and what's likely uh, to happen next, Anna? Yeah, I mean, I think the level of frustration and outrage that is felt maybe partly explains why we haven't joined up these conversations because, you know, around legacy at the minute, it feels so urgent, the concerns, because as you as you know, Colin, this bill is now at the final stages, report stages in the House of Lords and seems likely that it could possibly pass into legislation before the summer recess and as you rightly outlined it has uh you know it has attracted criticism loud and clear criticism from pe people better qualified than me to, to to speak on it it's like the, it's compatibility with the european convention on human rights and other international human rights standards so the council of europe the united nations amnesty international all of the victims groups and indeed as you mentioned the irish government and so that is deeply deeply uh, concerning uh, as regards you know the the peace process developed the joint stewardship of the two governments you know we know that and uh, you know it, it is as you say now very concerning uh, to see that that um the bilateral agreements have just been torn up uh, essentially uh, well by Boris Johnson when he sacked Julian Smith and then you know that the fact that this government even in spite of actually the most recent evidence suggests that a slim majority of Tory voters are opposed to it you know so it it it, it really does beggar belief um that this piece of legislation is being railroaded through in spite of all of that and yes in terms of where that leaves us with uh, the conversation around the constitutional question and so on maybe it goes back to what i said at the beginning i you know around um you know it it emboldening people i suppose it, it, it it's very difficult to, you know to see how if the good friday agreement was about a peaceful accommodation and trying to make this jurisdiction work on the basis of you know respect for one another an agreement that you could have either identity or or both and so forth and and acknowledging the role of 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 the irish government and so on i think to see all of that being messed with in such a reckless and dangerous way is deeply deeply concerning and it's bound to bleed through into to conversations about the constitutional future and what that looks like. Sorry, that wasn't a very coherent. No, it was totally coherent. Um, I think that it brings us also around um, to where we began the conversation about Brexit. Mm -hmm. So you have an administration that thinks it can 
run un completely unilaterally um, roughshod over all obligations, all previous agreements, all human rights norms. It thinks it can do that. And it's doing it with victims and survivors in particular now. In some ways, that's an accelerator for a new dispensation where we would see human rights being um, and citizenship being valued. And in some ways, it's an accelerator to change because who wants to be under an administration that wants to uh, and can treat the worst of uh, the, those affected by the worst of the violations during our conflict um, with such disregard? So in some ways, it's an accelerator. But what it also does is... Um, create an obligation on the Irish government. So the urging for them to use human rights instruments like the interstate case is so important because we need to see citizens across the island um, stood up for by the Irish government in this context. And that's absolutely outside the spirit of the Good Friday Agreement when we think about it. This is not how this was meant to progress. We weren't meant to see one co-guarantor threatening to take the other co-guarantor to the European Court, but that's the environment that we're in now. So we see exactly the state of abandonment um, of the Good Friday Agreement that the, this administration has created. Again, that's another imperative for us all to look at how we can safeguard human, um, the human rights of victims and survivors. The truth is, this isn't going away. So for victims and survivors now, they know that the legislation is coming, their heads are in, what comes next? The, the, the relatives that are passing away are literally passing the baton on to the next generation. So we are condemning our next generation, those who will vote for a United Ireland, who will vote for a new dispensation, to a lifetime of trauma and seeking answers and seeking justice for past violations. That will go into this new dispensation. So how do we, as those, some of us are arguing for this, how do we accommodate that? How do we support that? There will be issues around trauma. There will be issues about intergenerational um, intergenerational trauma as well across this island, not just focused in the north. And that will come into the into this, too. So I think we need a broad ranging. And to be fair, it'll have to be a bottom up conversation because it will involve those people who've been most dispossessed, most um, disregarded by society who will have to give us the answers. And they will. It's Again, fascinating to listen to you both, the extent to which there's reference to wide and deep civic discussion around the futures conversation. But of course, if that is wide civic engagement, that will involve fundamentally victims and survivors, injured people who are carrying mm -hmm. the trauma of the conflict into those uh, discussions as well. There's often a lot of talk about the Good Friday Agreement framing the, the discussion, and we've had the 25th anniversary uh, events that have happened this year. Um, but I wonder, take a moment just to reflect on w what that actually means. You know, what does it mean to say that the discussion we're having today and, and about constitutional changes framed by that agreement? I suppose I'm really asking you both what that agreement means to, to both of you, Anna. Um, I mean, I... I suppose, I think there's a danger if you didn't live through the horrors of the conflict and if you don't remember the Good Friday Agreement being signed, it's just so, and that, I suppose if the, the anniversary did anything, at least it helped us all to jog our memories uh, and think back to the decades of hard work that went in on the part of community groups, civic society, policymakers, politicians, women's groups and so forth to get us to that point where we could uh, safeguard the peace with a very sophisticated constitutional settlement that accommodated, you know, Britishness, Irishness, um, 
the east, north, south, east, west dimensions. Just how much, and then as you know better than anyone, Colin, you know, the ways in which human rights and equality was threaded through all of that, you know, to enable us to sort of go forward peaceably. But but a key, a key part of that agreement, as we all know, was uh, the provision for, you know, change as and when, uh, you know, a majority, uh, it seems likely that a majority would wish for that change. So it's simply just a reality. It was part of that that uh, Good Friday Agreement. So it's inevitable, I suppose, that that will be part of this conversation and why the Good Friday Agreement is central to it. I mean, I think one of the things that we really need clarity on, of course, is that is is, is, is some sense of what the metrics are for that, you know, so is it, you know, this for the Secretary of State, it's very ambiguously framed just to say that the Secretary of State will determine, you know, when. So obviously that's a key part of the conversation around, uh, you know, uh, if and when um, uh, a border poll would happen. But I think that it's prudent and wise in the interim, uh, which speaks to your point about preparation for us to be having these conversations, to be planning so that we can all vote from as informed a point of view as possible um, if and when the time comes. So, but I I mean, as regards the Good Friday Agreement more generally, for me, it's the scaffolding for peace. It's um, it's also, you know, it's underpinned by an international agreement. And it's just frightening, as Andrew would say, that we should have... um, a UK government that is so recklessly um, uh, tampering with that when those of us who remember the horrors that preceded it uh, know well, you know, what the repercussions of all of that might look like. So um, that's... It's interesting, again, just even listening to the the way in which memory is woven into your answer Mm. around Mm. that as well, that the people who remember what happened here... But uh, I, I mean, I'm sorry to interrupt yeah, you, but I yeah, mean, it was just yeah. whenever I was talking at that Good Friday Agreement thing, I, I started it by just saying, I mean, I was a student that come up from Dublin and I remember standing in our kitchen at home watching the news unfold and, and I caught a glimpse of my mother out of the corner of my eye standing at the ironing board and like, with tears running down her face. Do you know, her first child was born in 1966, do you know, and then through until 1980. So right across the country on that day, there were... People, including mothers, who were just standing there and the weight of of all that they had experienced and witnessed, you know, was weighing heavily. And it's just frightening, I think, 25 years on how much of that is forgotten. You know, the sense of a new dispensation, the sense of an opportunity, you know, to develop and and the ways in which we are now, um, I think, uh, you know, tampering with that in an extremely dangerous way. Andre, I think that's I think that's really interesting. Um, last week there was the um, solstice event of a day of reflection in Belfast, and some people were outside City Hall doing reflection on a conflict that had passed, and other people were outside the NIO protesting at the legacy legislation that was coming in. And you know there is a temptation for us to individualize the past, so we look at cases, so whether it's Sean Brown or whether it's the inquest cases or. Um, you know, different um, different people who've been killed during the conflict are, um, gain a focus at different points rather than us doing what you're talking about, Alan, which is remembering the impact of conflict on an entire community, on an entire island, and the conditions that foster that and the conditions that break that cycle and allow f- peace to, to be um, nurtured. And I think that um, that that this anniversary has given us a glimpse of remembering what it was to nurture peace. But then it was back to back to porridge, really. And um, a, a week later, where we were looking at um, the 
absolute stubborn failures to get Strand 1 up and running, where the British government went back into its silo in terms of human rights. You know, and so for the younger generation, who we hope might be reminded about the value of peace, all they can see is the um, perpetuation of conflict through another means. And that's the context in which we're having this conversation, which is why it often feels so hopeful. Because what we want to do is create something different to this. We don't want to keep on reinventing this horrible cycle of negativity. So in doing that, it's really tempting for us to say, well, the past and um, conflict and harm doesn't have a role in this better, brighter conversation, but it does. And, you know, it's about us having confidence, I think, in us being able to say we can embrace those most harmed. We can embrace those who are hurting and we they will travel with us. They are not a part. They are not a they at all. We we will do this together. And how we build that in a caring way, in a human rights compliant way is both our challenge and our opportunity, I think. Which leads seamlessly on really to to, to the, the next question and the sense in which your answers have really focused on lesson learning, not forgetting, remembering, but also promises not delivered and, and worrying about where that may lead us. The discussion around, the agreement uses the language of a united Ireland, um, but the conversation often is about a new Ireland. And I, I, I'm always intrigued by that as to what that means beyond the simply rhetorical reference to, to new. Um, I suppose what what challenges, particularly when thinking about the legacies of conflict, does that framing around uh, New Ireland present? Um, and I suppose to push that a bit further, you know, how would a New Ireland think about and remember and commemorate and mark some of the realities of, of what happened here? Uh, um. I mean, it's, it's a very good question. It's a difficult question, Colin, as to how we can... There's been a lot of talk about ethical remembrance in the decade of centenaries and so on. And even that process, which was obviously looking back to a much more distant conflict, highlighted just how difficult all of this is. Um, I think that, you know, during the decade of centenaries, there are some important lessons there that we can draw on. I think that there was an attempt, you know, to recognise a plurality of perspectives, to recognise the role of women... Um, and you saw that in the commemorative stamps and so on. But, you know, it, 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 it's, it, it's never easy, even 100 years ago. So, for example, one of those stamps featured a member of the Irish Citizens Army alongside a member of the Dublin Metropolitan Police. That provoked, you know, understandable for some people that could be very uh, sensitive, very hurtful and so on. And similarly, when it came to an RAC commemoration for some people, that was a bridge too far. So navigating this is really, really very, very difficult. And how you ensure that, um, you know, voices are, uh, uh, people are given voice, but not in a way that silences others. Uh, you know, I think all of that has to be very, very sensitively negotiated. Um, a lot a lot of thought and care needs to be to go into it. As Andre mentioned, that needs to be bottom up. It needs to start with people at the design stage informing, you know, what would what would actually what would this look like for their community? And just as we've discussed this in a, very, a different context around the apology process, but so much of it is about prior consultation, identifying where the sore spots are, what, what language would offend, what would be helpful, you know, and timing and sequencing and thinking through even the choreography, because, you know, it's very easy sometimes to do something that has good intent behind it, but the way it lands with people, you know, can actually be in hurtful and unhelpful in an unintended way. 
So I think just preparation and planning and prior consideration, you know, to the power of 100 in terms of this very, very fraught and difficult area. But I think there's always an opportunity here. And I think that, you know, we don't want to we don't want to repeat what happened in the past, as I say, upon the partition of this country, where one narrative is, you know, that's that public history, public monuments, public and another narrative is just driven underground and so on. And we know the dangers of all of that. So this is an opportunity to do things better. And so if we're talking about a new Ireland or a grey Ireland, it's a different Ireland. And it's one that is accommodating of, I suppose, the whole diversity of our society. And this is where equality and human rights helps us. It helps us with a framework to recognise that we do cherish all of the children equally, including those that are disadvantaged, those that are disabled, our LGBTQ uh, brothers and sisters, you know, right across our society. You know, we need to be thinking about you know, the travellers, all of the different, our new migrant communities, all of the different people that make up our new and increasingly diverse society and talk to them about what, you know, mm -hmm. how we can respectfully and helpfully address these issues going forward. And listen, every single word of that, I, I think um, memory and commemoration is not something that just happens. It's not an event. It's a process. Um, you know, and our memories um, can either be restricted and made to be smaller or we can say, as we've seen over the past 20 years, I think that our memories expand and as we include and we become enriched by the inclusion. And it's much more interesting when we uh, uncover histories that haven't been officially uh, marked in the in the past. I think that we're actually in pretty good starting place for much of this because we have come out of some awful, horrendous, painful processes in the recent past, whether it was the institutions, the uncovering then of the mother and baby homes. Um, all, all of that has increased our understanding of how processes that can be gotten very, very wrong can become contributory over a period of time. And now we're in a better place to know, look, we have done this wrong in the past. We're not going to repeat the, repeat that in the future. And we are going to ensure that citizens who've been harmed are embraced in the future. I think that we're going to have to do a lot of work. And, you know, Anna mentioned travellers there, just as one constituency on this island who've been treated absolutely appallingly since partition. You know, we have so much work to do in reparation in this new Ireland as well. So it's not just conflict harms, but obviously conflict harms will be deeply contested and deeply difficult for us to do that. But if we start now, there is so much potential there. The work of Eames Bradley, the work of, that was done around Hasso Sullivan and Stormont House hasn't gone away. Even the consultation around Stormont House, where it looked like some people were against it, actually what they were producing was saying, let's make this more inclusive, let's do more accountability. And I think that if we bring those principles of um, inclusion and human rights framing and ensuring that we see as many as we can and those who uncover themselves and reveal themselves to us, that we build processes so that is embraced and not denied. Thank you both very much. You'll be delighted to know this is my final <laughs> question in terms of uh, this discussion and of course we could, we could talk for the rest of the day on these themes and, and in many ways the start of, a, of trying to join up discussions too, as you both rightly said. There's a lot of reference to temporal timescales, timeframes, you know, some people writing a lot of this off as, you know, not likely to happen. Others 
feeling that this is relatively imminent. And I just wanted to get your own sense of that part of the discussion today is that we're potentially heading into referendums, right? Mm-hmm. And we know what referendums uh, can uh, entail. But I just want to get your sense of where you think this debate is at. You know, how, how likely is this to happen? Will these anticipated referendums happen in the next decade, the next two decades, and in our lifetimes, bearing in mind different ages and all, and all of, of, of that? Um, is this going to happen? And if it's going to happen, what sort of timescale do you think, Anna? I think uh, a historian's the worst person to ask to predict the future. <laughs> Much happier digging around in the past. Um, I don't know, Colin. I mean, I, I think if you look at the pace of change in recent years, it, it seems likely, I don't know, in a five to ten year window that you could be looking seriously at uh, what a referendum would look like. There's obviously key questions, as I mentioned, that we need to to, to get some answers on around you know, what are the metrics for determining when that might help to inform what, you know, something around timeframes. And I think whilst we wait for answers and all of that, I think that um, yourself and Andre and others are quite right to be doing the heavy lifting in terms of, of, of informing the conversation and the planning and the preparation and so on. So that, as I say, you know, when the time comes that we're not going to just sort of blunder our way into this we have the recent example of brexit you know that's a lot we obviously do not want to repeat that we want people you know to be and and in that sense then the process is as important as the referendum because it's the process that opens up those key opportunities for us to hear one another and to you know have these conversations and that is is worth its weight in gold do you know it's not just about the results of a cut because what we all know like a constitution's one thing you know in a constitutional framework but it's the society that 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 is underpinned by that and that's where any work that we put in now will pay dividends into the future regardless of whether it's two five twelve years down the line so that's my own feeling on it. and i'm going to just also just when it comes into my mind on that point to get in one other uh like against the legacy bill when it's in my head (laughs) (laughs) if I have time Um, no and it's just that I think that whilst I you know obviously it will be clear that I think it's so important to provide opportunities you know for people to you know uh, tell their stories and for their identity to be respected and so on one of the things I think that worries me most about this bill is what I see having watched the oral history memorialization part of it develop over the years is the way in which that is now front and centre of the bill that's making its way through Parliament. And so I see a danger of actually some of the work that we've been talking about around, you know, the potential to do really important work, that I see it as a very sinister thing that, in my view, the way in which I think in these proposals, there's a sense that, oh, we're going to do some of that work, but I see it as a very sinister smokescreen for the real intent behind the bill. And that particularly angers me because I feel so passionately about the importance of this broader programme of work as done ethically and sensitively and properly. Um, and I see that potential being sullied in uh, the outworking of the particular set of proposals that's making its way through Parliament. So sorry, that's taken me a wee bit away from your uh, original question. but No, it's yeah. fantastic. Essential points, Andre, in terms of the referendum. I think um, when things start to happen, they, re- they can happen really quickly. So I think, you know, the past... Oh, six years, seven years, we've been asking about planning and about um, the optimum amount of time to do that. 
I think that opportunity might actually be drifting away from us. I think we could see a referendum being called very quickly and our planning time being reduced um, significantly as a result. If we think about even 15 years as a block, 15 years ago, no one on this island could get married in a same-sex marriage. Nobody, um, you know, the, there was um, a, a ban on abortion in most circumstances on this island. You know, when change comes, it'll, it'll come very quickly. I think Anna's absolutely right about um, how we will hold that uh, and about the archive. I want to echo that completely. It is really interesting how the state and when the state has intent can turn around and say, look, you can tell your story and actually hide all of that story. It's really interesting how a state can do that. And, there, and the southern state has done it in the past. And we can certainly see that the British state has an interest to do it now. Um, and that should be an impetus for all of us as citizens with equal rights to try and ensure that our new republic, our new island, in whatever form it takes, whatever even the result of, the, of these referenda ends up being, that we understand each other better. We commit to each other in a more meaningful way and that we build a future together, whatever that 50 plus one ends up being. Thank you both so, so much. Um, I think we could talk for the rest of the day <laughs> on, on the questions that have been raised. What we've been trying to do, in a sense, is to connect the legacies of the conflict conversation with the discussion around constitutional change and the constitutional future. So I want to thank you for contributing to, to the podcast series. I'm a really great admirer of the work that you both do. You are absolute legends uh, in terms of these discussions. And I really do wish you well in your ongoing uh, work, including in trying to address the major flaws in what's being proposed at the moment. I also want to thank Colin Heatley uh, from Queen's University of Belfast. Um, Colm is a reason why you are currently listening uh, to all this and I want to take the opportunity today to thank him for his support for this series over the last few years. We have many, many stories mm -hmm. uh, around putting these podcasts together in, in often challenging and difficult circumstances, but it's very much a team effort and I want to thank Colm. I hope you enjoy this latest contribution to the series and I very much hope you all enjoy what remains of our summer.